From the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania and Sirius XM, this is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. The conversation you're about to hear was originally recorded on the Work and Life radio show on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by Wharton. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. My guest today is Joan Williams, who is Distinguished Professor at the University of California Hastings College of Law and the founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law. In this episode, we talk about her provocative new book. It's called White Working Class, Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America, which is based on a blockbuster digital article she published in the Harvard Business Review just days after the presidential election. That was called What So Many People Don't Get About the U.S. Working Class. We focus on the issue of dignity, an essential aspect of one's identity that affects all aspects of one's life. Joan believes the American elite neither understands nor appreciates the working class's struggle for a prosperous middle-class life, a dream that's getting harder and harder to realize. In our conversation, we explore the ways the elite and working class can work to achieve harmony instead of conflict and policy solutions that can help the working class. As usual, on the radio show, in the second half uh, of the Sirius XM Wharton radio show that I host weekly, I talk to listeners. And we've started to include some of those brief conversations here on the podcast. So in this episode, there are a couple who shared their stories about dignity. I hope you enjoy my conversations with them. And now with Joan Williams. Joan Williams, welcome to Work and Life. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Oh, it's great to have you here, Joan. Uh, so for decades, you've been researching and writing about unfairness in, in the workplace, but your November 2016 HBR piece, uh, just days after the election of, of Trump, uh, what so many people don't get about the U.S. working class, it really struck a huge chord um, and became uh, one of, well, the most widely read piece in that that uh, that organization's history. Our, our common friend and editor, Sarah Green Carmichael, uh, shout out to her. She, she, uh, she actually brought you and I together uh, to appear in a panel at South by Southwest a couple of years ago, and she edited this piece and, and helped you to bring it to life. Um, yeah, let me just let me just jump in there for a minute. Please. Sarah Green Carmichael. The only reason that the piece in HBR, what so many people don't get about the U.S. working class, exists, and the only reason that the book exists, um, as I say in my acknowledgments, um, it's clear that Sarah knows what I should write and when I should write it. So, <laughs> yes. yeah, hats off to her. That's why I started with this uh, because uh, she's someone who I owe a great deal of debt to as well. She's a, a really canny editor and, and a great person. So for those who have not read uh, the article or the book, 
briefly, what is it that you are uh, seeing and, and bringing to light in this piece that, uh, that, that really needed to be heard? Well, that it, the book is really designed for anyone who is surprised that Trump won, mm-hmm. or anyone who voted for Trump who feels that they've been misunderstood. It's really mm. um, for those two groups. And I, at the closing weeks of the 2016 election, was getting more and more nervous because I really, I'm a, I'm a yellow dog Democrat, we used to call. And I, I kind of knew that Clinton was kind of going to lose. I just felt it in my bones. And um, Sarah had actually been trying to get me to write about it, and I'd been sort of giving her the old manana. And um, then mm-hmm. when I left an election night party at 7.30 in San Francisco and went home, I saw an email from Sarah saying, now you really must write about the election. Mm-hmm. I've been, I wrote a book about uh, about social class in 2010, which was um, kind of fell into a very deep black hole, got very little attention. Mm. And this, in some ways, this new Harvard Business Review book um, is a, an incredibly um, updated and better written version of the, the original book. The, the, the argument is that it's really not surprising that Trump won, and that the the fact that Trump won is a byproduct of a really a broken relationship between the cultural elites in this country and the white working class. A broken relationship, and and how does the that little Phillips head screw in the center of the cover, that purplish Phillips head screw on this stark black cover with the faded white letters, what does that represent about that broken relationship, if anything? Well, I mean, the the, uh, the white working class is really, um, I don't know if I can use the vernacular here, Stu, you tell me. No, this have, is Sirius XM, you can say whatever you want. They have really been screwed. <laughs> they have really been screwed. I mean, there's a lot of statistics. The one that sticks in my mind is that their, um, the income um, of high school educated men has decreased by something like 46% mm-hmm. since 1970. Um, and even mm-hmm. that's a little bit of an old figure. It's probably worse now. Um, and the, the answer that the cultural elites have given um, these guys is, uh, and these families, because these families depended on the blue collar wages of these men because. The, the pink-collar wages of the women just kind of didn't cut it to support the family alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer that's really been given by the cultural elites is, if you want a future in this country, graduate from college. Um, and we're going to make college accessible to all. Well, you know, that didn't happen. Um, two-thirds of Americans are not college graduates. Mm-hmm. And if you have elites saying to um, non-college grads, well, if you don't graduate from college, you're kind of on your own, and um, you're not gonna you're gonna lose that middle class standard of living. Uh, those um, those people are going to get really really angry and feel really really abandoned for um, one really good reason they they have been abandoned. Um, as the elites have said to them, well, global trade, you know, we're gonna have these great tra- great 
trade treaties and uh, GNP is going to increase. And the GNP did increase. Those trade treaties are really great for GNP. And, you know, we can all buy cheaper underpants um, at Walmart. But if you don't have a, have a job, that's kind of not responsive. Mm-hmm. So so the the white working class has been screwed uh, by the economic uh, progression of the last 30, 40 years. But there's a lot more to the story than not going to college um, and missing yeah. out on the gains uh, that, that the elites have been able to, yeah. to achieve yeah. that, and, you know, that you speak it's about. It's not just the white working class that is really lagged behind um, economically. It's, it's, it's the working class, period. Um, but the, that's only, as you point out, part of the, part of the issue. I mean, the, there's also been a lack of social honor um, where cultural elites have become very, very self-conscious about not talking down to um, the low-income people, people of color, women, the LGBTQ community, at the same time, they have um, they are absolutely unselfconscious uh, about open class insults. Uh, the one that I it always jumps to my mind is plumber's butt. Mm-hmm. You know, my reaction is, well, actually, you have one of you know you have that too. But I was just living I was living in the Netherlands for a few months, mm-hmm. and I noticed that um, no that plumber's butts there. Party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, what I noticed it, is that there's a there there has for hundreds of years been a stereotype of of the the coarse um, um, uh, ungainly peasant that hmm. um, has been repeated unselfconsciously in the United States. And Plummer's Spot is is one example, but another is the character of Pensatucky, who was a character in the first season of Orange Is the New Black. And this was a someone who was a, a white working class gal who was depicted as uh, in very unflattering terms, basically as mm-hmm. a um, an ugly coarse peasant. Mm-hmm. And we just don't use those kinds of um, stereotypes in polite company for other groups, nor should we. Mm-hmm. Uh, nor should we be using those kind of stereotypes, um, talking about people in flyover states and and writing off um, plant. Uh, Trump voters as just a reflection of racism, sexism, homophobia. Now, was there some of that? Um, you know, and ignorance. Uh, another part of your argument, right? Yeah, I mean, there, there. Uh, white, the white supremacist newspaper was, if I remember correctly, the only newspaper in the com- country to um, endorse um, President Trump. But to write off these millions of voters. Um, who had their own um, sincerely felt and heartfelt concerns, mm-hmm. many of them economic concerns, um, on the grounds that they're simply racist. I mean, that sounds to me like elite whites refusing to listen to the economic concerns of mm-hmm. less elite whites on the grounds that those other whites are racist. Well, and, not less you know, elite, said, but but working class, and by yeah, by, by yeah, stark contrast, working class whites are racist. And, so, you know, there's enough racism to, to go around. So, um, this is not some. That's not an excuse that elite whites should be using. Dignity is an important aspect. Somehow, we have lost this quality of of uh, of honoring those who are in different social classes. And that the dignity of the working person 
uh, has been um, degraded, as as we're discussing here. And and yeah. and how can we reverse that uh, so that um, the class divide is not this chasm here that's causing all this misunderstanding and uh, and um, and conflict and in in some ways violent conflict. What can be done? Yeah, I mean, these are, I think the, the thing that, that I find, again, a little off about the current, many of the discussions in my crowd is like, oh, it's all knowledge jobs. The future is all knowledge jobs. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, it's not all knowledge jobs. I mean, uh, the reason I don't have breast cancer is because um, a radiology tech takes a mammogram for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the the plumber, the, the plum. There's actually a shortage of plumbers in many cities, that is constraining um, the construction boom. And mm-hmm. you know, if we stopped talking about plumbers' butt and started respecting the important work that these people do in making our everyday lives possible, safe, and comfortable, it would um, be an, an important step towards remedying this broken relationship between the cultural elites um, and the white working class. So it, what else can, can people in that, in that social status be doing to, to bring a, uh, you know, a, a greater sense of uh, understanding and honor to those who are in uh, the working class and vice versa? Yeah. I mean, I think there's really three things that people in the the elites can do. First is um, stop insulting people. Um, mm-hmm. Stop using these very insulting class insults in a very unselfconscious way. Mm-hmm. Um, just to say um, a, a few more bars about that. Think of Homer Simpson or think of Archie Bunker. All of these are caricatures of white working class men as sex, sexist, racist, um, probably fat, Maybe homophobic, certainly stupid. Uh, that's that's just not consistent with a commitment to equality. Uh, so that that's really the first thing. The second the second thing I think is is a message for both the Democratic um, and the Republican Party. Mm-hmm. Um, for the Democratic Party, if that when the Democratic Party um, was in coalition with the working class of all races. They put good jobs for people without college graduate who were not college graduates at the center of their agenda. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it, that needs to be at the center again. I mean, at some level, these working class people are, are just asking for what the cultural elites already have, which is jobs that allow them to give them and their children their vision of a good middle class life. And um, in some ways, Republicans have an answer for this. It's supply-side economics. Um, I kind of think we tried that. I kind of think it didn't work. Um, But the the third thing is really the hardest, which is to realize that the the sort of self-description of the cultural elites are that we're cosmopolitan, we're open-minded, and I think, and then, and that the white working class is closed-minded and narrow and parochial. I, I think that it's really important to realize that the idea that that um, the elites are cosmopolitan and open-minded—that's a series of folkways that fits in to 
an elite life. We have national or global networks where we can move any place in the world, and I can tell someone I'm a law professor, and I have immediately I have immediate social honor. Um, I tell the story in my book of um, somebody in my uh, my husband's high school class. He grew up in a rust belt town. My husband inadvertently, kind of non-thinking, lack of code switching here, asked him, what do you do? The guy got extremely offended and got right up in his face and said, I sell toilets. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, if somebody sells toilets, um, they're not going to go to Leiden, as I just did in the Netherlands, because why would you want to know them? They're going to stay close to home where people know that they're a good person, a person to be reckoned with, and um, quite apart from their job. And they, white working-class families, this is true actually of all non-elite families, um, working-class families of all races and low-income families, they tend to stay close to home mm-hmm. and be very rooted. Some of them, for these reasons related to social honor, some of the, them, though, because um, their children are part of their social network. Of course, they and they're caring for their device. grandchildren. Yeah, exactly. So in, in um, the few minutes so that... moving away would be maybe not such a great Of course, and, and counter to the norms and expectations of, of kids growing up in um, so much of America. So and, we, we've only got so a couple minutes here. The of the elite are folkways. They're not absolute truth. That's a really important ah, message. So, and and so so breaking into those um, those folk ways, what what what's required? What um, you, what must be done from, you know, you from your point it. of view? You said it's due. It's respect. Um, mm-hmm. And I think elites, particularly when they, I was actually talking to a very well-meaning colleague of mine. He said, "Well, I think these people need our our compassion." And I was going like. They don't want your compassion. They want your respect. They want your respect for um, the fact that they're doing important jobs, the fact that they're doing often unrelenting jobs that are boring with grace and dignity. They're keeping their families together. They're taking care of their families at the same time when both parents are working in incredibly stressful circumstances. And uh, I think that the important message that these, this is not, you know, a group that we should have compassion for because of the opioid um, epidemics. This is a group of Americans who do unbelievably important jobs that make our daily lives possible and are thoughtful people just like we are. But their lives deliver them different different truths than our lives have delivered us so, culturally. So, since you've written this, um, I wonder how, if at all, your own behavior has changed with respect to people on you know other sides of the the class divides that that you inhabit. Not really, Stu. I mean, I'm an old time labor person. I'm right. you know. I, I, I looking. I, I, I always joke. I look at tipping as a redistributive opportunity. Um, I, I uh, as you do know, I, I, as somebody who worked for tips for a long time, and yeah, as my father did I, his whole life. Yeah. When, I, when someone helps me, no matter what the job, I lo- I meet their eyes and I tell them thank you. Because All right. For a very simple reason, I'm grateful for their help. That's so, why I tell them. Thank so you. that's one very specific thing that the elites uh, listening to us right now can do, and that is to demonstrate gratitude through words and deed. Do and you respect. Ha- are there other specific suggestions that that you have for for what we can do to? 
uh, to bring us closer together, uh, the different parts um, of our, of our nation's that, culture? You know, it, the bubbles that we live in are now really well documented. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I think has been very positive about Trump's election is that cultural elites now understand that they're living in a bubble and there's a, there's a different bubble that other people are living in. So I think reading my book, White Working Class, and there's the, at the, in the end of my book, I have a reading list um, for, for people. I say, here's what to read if you want to read one mm-hmm. book, here's what to read if you want to read five books, and here's more books. I think it's, I mean, the cultural elites really spent a lot of time in the 60s and 70s and 80s reading and learning about the daily lives and daily realities of the poor. And I think it's time that they started to um, to bring their analytical intelligence mm-hmm. and their imagine, social imagination um, to the white working class. And when they do, they will understand working class people um, of all races a lot better, and they'll understand what's happening in the United States. So um, last last question I'll ask you is about um, <clears throat> what you just started to speak about, which I think is so crucial to your argument and which is made really powerfully in the book, and that is um, the resentment that uh, people in the white working class feel for programs, for social programs that benefit the poor, but not them. Yeah, um, there's, and there's because it's been so difficult in the United States to pass social programs, and for a lot of other reasons, there's been a tendency to instead of having universal programs, um, recently to focus on social programs that are tightly targeted to the poor. Uh, Those are often felt to be really irritating to people who are just one notch above them when they see the poor getting social benefits and themselves hard-working people getting nothing. And uh, I think one really important public policy message is that the class dynamics of means-tested programs are truly poisonous. And the solution is the kind of universal programs that become immediately popular. And Mm -hmm. we've just seen an example in Obamacare, where the two elements of, of universal social programs, the ability to keep your kids on your insurance until they're 25, right. and the right? surrounding pre-existing conditions, mm-hmm. immediately became politically untouchable, very popular. Because everybody that's benefits. The that's the direction that we need to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, programs that benefit everyone, not just people who yeah. are poor. Yes. Because well, that, that then eliminates the divide between those people. I'm sorry? Yeah, universal social programs um, like um, Medicare and Social Security that mm-hmm. benefit everyone. Mm-hmm. Joan, I really appreciate what the, the work that you've done uh, throughout your illustrious career, but especially this piece, which I think is such an important aspect of what our country uh, needs to be thinking about and acting on uh, to, uh, to be healing. Uh, the, uh, the 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 wounds that uh, that separate us. Uh, Joan Williams, um, <clears throat> author of the really important new book, White Working Class: Overcoming Class Cluelessness in America. Uh, how can listeners learn more about the work that you're doing? 
Um, well, they can um, <clears throat> they can follow me on Twitter, Joan C. Williams. They can get the book from um, from Harvard Business Review or your local book bookseller. It's also available online. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look forward to continuing the conversation. Joan, thanks so much for being my guest tonight. You're listening to the Work and Life podcast. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. And in this next part, I'm going to be talking with a couple of the people who called in to my Sirius XM Wharton radio show about my conversation with Joan Williams. Both of these callers express frustration with the disrespect shown to the white working class. And so they put flesh on the bones of Williams's trenchant analysis about the need to recover their lost dignity. So here now are my brief conversations with Melissa and then Gerald. Uh, Melissa, welcome to Work and Life. Hi. Hi. Um, I just wanted to, thank you for taking my call, I just wanted to talk about um, I grew up in a small town in western Kansas, mm-hmm. and I live in Kansas City now. I've lived there for five years, and at the place that I used to work at, um, there were always just, like, comments, not all the time, but there were people that would just kind of talk down to about small towns. Like, they're like, Melissa, how did you, you know, how did you survive? Or they would say something like, um, like, oh, did you have one in running water? Just kind of like they like talking about like the, my community like hmm. it was primitive were lesser than mm-hmm. does that make sense lesser than of course and, it makes sense yes that's what we're talking yeah. about yeah and so you so, um, what was that like am, for you oh go ahead no I'm just asking what was that like for you um well it was I just felt like they never lived in the town that I lived in they don't know the people they have like they, mm-hmm. they just don't know like I. Um, I grew up, my family was in the farming business. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandpa had owned a farm and, and like just incredibly like good people that work really hard and I'm sure. provide, you know, crops for, <laughs> you know, like everyone in this country. And, and so it's just, it's, it is, it was frustrating for me and it wasn't like, I usually, you know, I work with great people, but it wasn't always like that, but there were just like demeaning comments like that. And, that was really frustrating. And what me. was what was the impact on you in terms of how you felt about yourself and about your ability to interact with those people who were well, who were giving you a kind of stereotype of your life, right? Not really seeing the person for the for the you know their view of what that person's of you and your your background, what your folks uh, were were really like. They didn't see the they didn't see the human person there. It seems to me right. Like yeah, it just felt. I felt surprised because I didn't see myself like that and I didn't mm-hmm. see my family like that. Mm-hmm. And so, um, it, and I just felt like they didn't have a clue too, and they were just judging. So I, right. I just kind of brushed it over. Like they didn't really know, but it, it, it does hurt when people don't respect you. Of course. And they do incredibly great work. <laughs> I think but, you got uh, to the heart of it there, Melissa. It hurts yeah. when people don't respect you. And, yeah. And so what do you think we can be doing to generate 
greater mutual respect among people who are different from each other, particularly across class lines. What do you think could be done? see the human. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty obvious. It is obvious, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just like appreciate people. I um, Before I got, I'm a video producer editor. Uh-huh. Before I got this job, I waited tables. And I actually, like, I went from like temporary part-time to part-time to video. Pro- so I, I worked in that industry. Mm-hmm. And um, where you, you know, there's, you wait on great people all the time, but then there's always people that look down on you for that too and so it's it's yeah just what the the author of the book was saying she just respects what these people do and they do great work like you couldn't mm-hmm. enjoy going out to eat and you would have to probably spend more money if a server wasn't bringing you food yeah so so, so we gave them tip them well mm-hmm. um, and and then just the same you know it just goes around the board just the human being because we're all humans and that's it, <laughs> it's really not that complicated is it melissa right <laughs> but no. but it's it's remarkable how uh how much in sh- you know in short supply the expression of respect uh seems to be uh Melissa, I really appreciate your sharing your story, uh for listening. Uh thank you so much for calling work and life. Really appreciate it. Uh, Gerald, uh, welcome to Work and Life. Hey, hello. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. I am definitely not an elite. <laughs> All right. But one of the things that I have a question is, is dignity even possible in our capitalist society? Mm-hmm. You know, in our capitalist society, companies are driven by dividend, chasing the dividend, chasing the retail sales, chasing your numbers, reports. So many reports that your reports have reports, you are, and because of the industrial engineering, the, the, the system that we live in, you know, you, you don't really matter in a company nowadays. You are just a cog in the wheel, and you are easily replaceable. If you get sick, if you get hurt, if you die, all they're going to do is just say, oh, sorry for your loss, uh, sad to see them go, and then they're going to plug the next one in. You're replaceable, you know, and that's the way the system is nowadays. So with that in its place, how in the world could you possibly have any level of care mm. for the human being? It, it, you're not supposed to care. Actually, the company I work for, they purposely take managers and move them from one place in the company to the next place in the company to the next building mm-hmm. to the next city so that you don't get connected to your wow. subordinates. Because if you get connected mm. to your subordinates, then you might actually care. Wow. And then you might start, you know, so you think uh, it's a- making... Say again? You think it's a conscious strategy to keep people from forming, you know, a sense of compassion and mutual understanding? Exactly. It is. It is done on purpose so that they do not form those bonds. But again, that's the capitalist society we live in so that it's just all about the reports, getting your numbers so that we can chase that dividend, so that Mm -hmm. we can do those things. So how in the world can you possibly have any dignity in a society that is all about the dollar. So if, I there don't was, get it. if there was one thing that you could change, Gerald, about the way your organization uh, operates, what what would it be that would that would result in a greater uh, expression of respect and and, uh, and and production of greater dignity among all employees? 
it's funny that you ask that because I've actually had that conversation uh, last month with uh, some upper management, and what I told them was that, you know, we're not stupid. I'm 41 years old, and the reality is, is that culture starts from the top down, and the responsibility is from the bottom up. And it's you guys' job to set a culture that actually shows that you actually, you know, care. I didn't say the word care. I used stronger language, but I'm on the air right now. I said, I said you need to show that. Something like and, give a hoot? And, yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> With a little bit more passion and flair. Mm-hmm. And I said the problem is, is that you all have practices that flat out show that you do not care. Mm-hmm. And, of course, their response is, of course we care. But I had to give them many examples to show that they care. For example, I said, let me ask you this question. And I, and I named some employees that were recently out of the workplace because they were hurt. They were injured on the job. Uh And I said, did you call this person? Did you call that person? Did you call that person? I already knew the answer was no because I had already talked to these employees and say, hey, did anybody from management or upper management call to see how you were doing while you were out hurt? Mm -hmm. They said no. Mm -hmm. And I just showed it right there. You don't even call your people to see if they're okay. That, so that would be a good example of, of what people can do to just express basic human uh, caring and compassion. <laughs> Gerald, really appreciate your call. Thank you so much for, for joining me on, on Work and Life. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Joan Williams, distinguished professor at the University of California, Hastings College of Law, and founding director of the Center for Work-Life Law, and with the callers who join me on the radio show. Perhaps you've been inspired by what you've heard here in this episode. So if you're a member of the professional managerial elite or of the working class, whatever stratum of society you're in, let me offer you this invitation, this challenge to take some action this week, that's a step toward better understanding and connection with those in another part of our society. Why not try that? You can be a part of the healing that our society so desperately needs. If you do something along those lines, I would love to hear about it. So you can write to me. Let me know what you discovered. You can tweet me at Stu Friedman, or email me at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. For more information about Joan Williams, follow her on Twitter, as I do, at Joan C. Williams, or go to biasinterrupters.org, very useful site, and check out her latest book, White Working Class. Thanks for listening to this episode of Work and Life. This conversation was originally recorded on my weekly radio show on Sirius XM 111, Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Tune in for live broadcasts of Work and Life on Tuesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern. For more about today's guest and about previous guests, check out our blog at workandlifepodcast.com. Join the conversation by tweeting at Stu Friedman. And for more ideas and tools for creating harmony among the different parts of life, check out our website, totalleadership.org, and my book, Total Leadership, Be a Better Leader, Have a Richer Life. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and share it. 
with your friends, family, and coworkers. Until next time, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I thank you for joining me.